Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We are continuing our verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study through the Gospel of John. And we are coming to a new setting this evening as we begin with John chapter 9 and the story of a man who was born blind. Humanity has a fundamental issue. We are blind. We can't see things well. That is why people get scammed, right? They can't see through the scam. They can't see the deception in the scam. It sounds right to them. So they buy into it, but there's things that are wrong that they can't see. This chapter and the story that's here is a story about blindness, and I've entitled this chapter The Dilemma of Blindness, John chapter 9. There's much for us to uncover as we go into this chapter. And I'd like to read through this chapter tonight and read through it from the New Living Translation, our Messiah Bible, so that we get a picture of all that is happening in this dilemma of blindness. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, No, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. They asked him, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, 
I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been born blind and told him, God should get glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? They asked him. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed. I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying that we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Isn't that a fascinating story? Let's take a few minutes tonight and look at this story and understand what makes this story so exceptional. Chapters 7 and 8 go together as one account. And in those chapters, we see Jesus presenting himself as the light of the world. We also saw as we studied those chapters that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles and all that that feast represented. Now as we come to chapter 9, we will find that chapters 9 and 10 are also paired together. 
And together they make another significant presentation of the identity and the mission of Jesus. Now this healing of the man who was born blind is the sixth of seven signs that John presents to reveal the glory of Jesus. Remember we said that John curated out of all the signs that Jesus did, all the miraculous works, he curated seven. He didn't call them simply miracles. He called them miraculous signs. And he intended them for a specific purpose, that those he, were, he was writing to, those who were reading his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This account is also considered by interpreters to be a brilliantly crafted account, the most well-crafted of all the stories that John presents in his gospel. Now, there are three questions that you and I need to remember when we are looking at the seven signs that Jesus accomplished. Back in the beginning, as we began studying John and we looked at the first sign, we went back to the prologue to understand how we need to interpret the seven signs. The first sign was the water turned into wine at the wedding at Cana. And then each of the signs that we have looked at, the last one being the healing of the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. With each of those signs, we have asked these questions again. These three questions come out of the prologue. The prologue sets the foundation for everything that is in John's gospel. And everything that we read after the prologue we refer back to the prologue and look at the principles that were presented to us there so that we can understand what John is telling us, how he is endeavoring to present to us the identity of Jesus as the Messiah in such a way that it leads us to eternal life. So the first question is, how is the glory of the one and only revealed? We want to keep this question in mind as we study this healing of the man who was born blind. How is the glory of the one and only revealed? In the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember that after the Advent season came Epiphany, and that was a season of revelation and manifestation. Jesus came to reveal the Father. And John tells us that his glory has been revealed to us. And yet we know that there were many people who did not see his glory, did not understand how he was revealed, how he was manifested. 
So we ask a question whenever we come to one of these signs. How is the glory of the one and only revealed? The second question is, how is the transition from law to grace or Moses to Christ revealed? And we ask that question because John tells us in the prologue that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so with every one of these miraculous signs, Jesus is revealing a transition. We see those transitions even outside of the miraculous signs. We saw it in John chapter 7, where Jesus presented himself as the fulfillment for the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles that was established through Moses. As the Jews recounted how God led them through the wilderness and his pillar of fire gave them covering and direction and he provided water for them from the rock. And remember, they went every morning to dip water out of the pool of Siloam, bring it back in, pour it out at the altar and then at the evening to light the torches and commemorate what was given and what was done through Moses. But now Christ has come, the promised one. There is a transition. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we ask this question with each of the miraculous signs that John has presented to us. How is the transition from law to grace, Moses to Christ, revealed? The third question that we ask is, what blessings of grace are revealed? Again, in the prologue, John tells us, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And so we look at each of these signs to understand under this new order, in this new covenant that Jesus has brought, one that is founded upon grace, one that is revealed through his glory, what are the blessings that he has brought us? Blessings that flow from this one who has come full of grace and truth. So remember those three questions as we read through this chapter, as we study the healing of this man who was born blind. This account is structured like seven dramatic scenes. Questions in one scene will set the stage for the next scene. John tells us that as Jesus and his disciples were going along, they encountered a man who had been born blind. And that prompted the disciples to ask their sin and sickness question. Automatically, they linked the man's malady that he had been born blind to sin. And so they asked Jesus that question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responded with a 
missions statement, a missions explanation. And then put the mud on the man's eyes and sent him off to the pool to wash. Well, the man's healing resulted in his neighbor's confused questions. Aren't you the man? No, you can't be the man. How did it happen? Who did it? Where is he now? And when they didn't get the kind of answers they were looking for and they understood what had happened, well, they hauled him off to the Pharisees. Now, as you and I have already seen in our study, that, that sure leads you to clarity, doesn't it? If you want to be more confused, just go ask the Pharisees. But why did they take him? Because the healing had occurred on the Sabbath. We've been here before, haven't we? Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees accosted him because he was carrying his mat, as Jesus had instructed him to do. And that, as we saw, led to another complex situation. So this sets the stage for the Pharisees asking suspicious questions of the man. And when they can't come to a conclusion, they bring his parents in. And they are questioned. Well, his parents, out of fear, pass the buck. You ask him, he's old enough to speak for himself. And so the Pharisees again question the man, but this time their questioning, as it often does, becomes abusive. And ultimately results in them throwing him out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him and presents to him a salvation question, which results in this man coming to a full understanding of who Jesus is and worshiping him. In fact, you and I do not see another scene like this until John chapter 20, when Thomas is fully convinced beyond his unbelief that Jesus is alive. And he worships Jesus as Lord. Well, this man doesn't need nearly as much proof. He readily accepts Jesus' salvation question and responds in faith and comes truly to know Jesus. And these scenes of questioning end with another dramatic confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. There are a few things that I want us to take with us this evening. Next week, we'll begin looking at the different scenes and what is being taught to us in each one. But here are five things that you and I need to understand. There'll be many more lessons as we go through this chapter. But here are five significant things for you and I to keep in mind as we look at this account inspired by the Holy Spirit recorded by the Apostle John so that our faith in Jesus Christ would lead us to eternal life. Number one, born blind is our story. 
It is the story of every one of us. It is the story of everyone who has ever lived. That is the first spiritual truth that is presented to us in this chapter. Every one of us are blind from birth. And secondly, it's only through the initiative and work of Jesus. That's something that we call grace. The initiative and the work of Jesus. That we can receive sight. If he does not touch our eyes, we do not remain blind. If he does not pass our way, single us out, respond in compassion to our need, our circumstances don't change. We remain blind and dead in our sin, apart from the touch and the work of Jesus. The third thing we see as we go through this account is that blindness comes in many forms. There's institutional blindness. There is theological blindness. Structural blindness. Spiritual blindness. We will see each of those forms of blindness as we go through this account. Every one of them preventing people from experiencing who Jesus is and receiving the same kind of blessing of grace that this man received. Once again, it reminds us that apart from Jesus, we remain blind. A fourth thing that we understand from this passage is that grace experienced that does not lead to confession of faith in Jesus before others is worthless. Whereas the Apostle Paul would characterize it, grace received in vain. Let's think back to John chapter 5, the last sign that we studied. Jesus was walking through this pool of Bethesda. And there was a man who had been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus approached him. Would you like to be able to walk? Well, I'd like to, but I don't have anyone to help me into the water. Whenever the angel stirs it, someone gets there ahead of me. And so Jesus took this man and lifted him to his feet. Instantly, his atrophied muscles, his twisted limbs were in perfect order. His balance was restored, and he could walk. Remember that Jesus told him to pick up his mat, go on his way. Off the man went. As we said a few moments ago, the Pharisees accosted him. Why are you carrying your mat? Well, this man told me to. Well, who is this man? I don't know his name. Later on, they accost Jesus for healing this man. And then Jesus came back and he found this man later and he warned him. Do not sin any longer, lest something worse come upon you. What did that man do? He went back to the Pharisees and snitched on Jesus. Oh, it was Jesus who healed me. Jesus said, remember, I tell you, whoever is not willing to confess me before men, 
I will not confess before my Father who is in heaven. We find this man in chapter 5. He experienced the grace of Jesus. Jesus took the initiative in coming to him. Jesus offered to him what he could not do for himself. Jesus made him whole. But that man did not embrace by faith Jesus and what he had done. In fact, that man's heart was even more hardened towards Jesus. Imagine, 38 years, he is crippled. Jesus heals him. But there's no gratitude. There's no faith. No appreciation whatsoever. His heart was hardened ground. And the seed was lost. Now we come to chapter 9 and we find that this man stands up to the Pharisees when they begin to abuse him with their questions. And when Jesus presents himself to this man as the son of man, faith leaps in this man's heart and he worships Jesus. What a contrast between the two. And fifthly, lest we be seeing but not perceiving. We must open ourselves to the scrutiny of Jesus to reveal our blindness to us. Did you catch the words that Jesus said to this man in the hearing of the Pharisees who were nearby? This man, who in the presence of the Pharisees nearby, had just worshipped Jesus, acknowledging him, before men. Jesus responded to this man and said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. You recall this year as we studied through the other Gospels, especially during our season prior to the death of Jesus. When Jesus spoke several times, one of those times being when he told the parable of the seed and the sower, and he quoted from Isaiah that people would be ever seeing but never perceiving. It would go in one ear and out the other. They would see, but it would not register in their spirit because their hearts were hard. That is the dilemma of any of us. Unless we open ourselves to the scrutiny of Jesus. To reveal our blindness to us. Blindness is supernatural. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. The God of this world. Has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God as it is revealed in Jesus. And then two verses later in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, But God who said, let there be light, referencing back to Genesis chapter 1, when in the midst of darkness God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Paul goes on, has caused his light to shine into our hearts, so that we are able to see 
so that we are able to understand and so that we are able to receive Jesus. Darkness, blindness is supernatural in its strength. We are helpless against it. We will be blind to the blindness that is in us. The Pharisees thought that they saw perfectly. They thought that they understood truth perfectly. They thought that they understood the law of God, the word of God better than anyone else. And they would not open themselves up to the scrutiny of Jesus. Remember the verse that we referenced on Sunday from Luke chapter 7. That the common people, the ordinary people, received John's message and were baptized with the baptism of repentance. But the Pharisees rejected John's message and John's baptism for the repentance of sins. And thus, they missed God's purpose for them. Unless we come to the Lord for him to do the work in us, we will never see the blindness that is in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own understanding. We need to open ourselves to the scrutiny of Jesus. We need to position ourselves in a place of surrender before him. You and I need to live this kind of a life. A life that says, Jesus, I am utterly dependent upon you. Jesus, I need to, you to do the work in me. I can't do it myself. Jesus, I need the understanding that only you can give. I need the sanctifying that only you can do. I need the enabling and the strength that only you can give to me. And you and I must be willing to allow Jesus to do the work in us that needs to be done. So that he can bring us into the fullness of his purposes and his calling for us. So may you and I never find ourselves scratching our heads over what we see. Or even worse, contesting what we see like the neighbors, like the Pharisees. But may our hearts be so open to Jesus, so inviting to him that every day we are saying to him, Jesus, I want you to show me more of how I need to be like you. Show me more of the blindness. Show me the unchristlikeness. Show me how I can serve you more faithfully. Show me how I can walk more closely with you. That is indeed the ultimate compliment that we can pay to the one who came on our behalf to be our all in all. That we invite him in to do a greater work in our hearts and in our lives. Amen.